I inherited my interest in poetry from my parents. I realized early that I could get my dad's full attention if I surprised him with a recitation from memory of one of his favorite poems, usually at our family's evening meal. I can still recite Kipling's The Ballad of East and West, Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky, and Banjo Patterson's The Man from Snowy River. But I never thought of myself as being good at poetry until one day in my required sophomore English literature class at the University of Texas at Austin, our professor passed out an intricate and unfamiliar poem to the class, and when nobody else raised their hand, I was delighted to offer my thoughts on it. Well, after class, a crowd of probably grade-mongering engineers gathered around me asking, how did you do that? How did you figure out that poem? Well, I felt like Einstein being asked, please tell us how to derive MC, MC, whatever it is. (laughs) I was immensely gratified to tell them how I did it. To me, poems have always seemed like, well, puzzles. You can puzzle them out if you use every one of the pieces. That is, the words. Just as with a jigsaw puzzle. In a poem, every word matters. And if you miss noticing anything at all about even one word, you might miss some of the many connections between the words, and even miss the big picture. The takeaways, the many meanings, which are the hidden rewards that come from puzzling out just how a really good poem's puzzle pieces all fit together. Whenever I'm puzzling out a new poem, I start out by putting all the different pieces that is, all the various words, into different mental piles based on similarities, just as you would a jigsaw puzzle. You know, sky pieces, edge pieces, cloud pieces, tree pieces, car pieces. And some of the pieces go in lots of different piles. So on this poetry day, may I share with you a little demo of my own personal way to puzzle out a poem using a favorite Elizabeth Bishop uh, poem. You can't say no, it's too late. (laughs) This poem is called The Fish. And like most good poetry, it compares various unlike things. Poetry is nothing if it's not all about comparisons. Elizabeth Bishop And you don't have to look at your program now. Um, Elizabeth Bishop carefully selected subtle, nuanced words in this poem that hint at a comparison between an ugly, exhausted old fish that she had just caught and, well, a sad old person. Sorry about that. Blame Elizabeth Bishop. She never, ever mentions an old person. Just a fish. 
But then halfway through the poem, Bishop shifts her perspective from a tragic ancient fish to, or, and also an implied ancient person, to a quite different vision. Bishop's word choices also hint at sudden shifts in perception that allow us to see our own perspectives freshly. In the blink of an eye, we can suddenly see past losses, for instance, maybe as great victories. This poem is full of such hidden word hints and double meanings that Uh, about losses and victories, struggles and achievements, perseverance, endurance, and beauty. Here are a few of of the poem's loveliest puzzle pieces. The fish didn't fight. He hung a grunting weight, battered and venerable and homely, I'm not sure I'm ready yet to be battered, venerable, and homely, but anyway. Bishop then compares the fish's brown skin to old wallpaper hanging in strips. The darker brown speckled with lighter rosettes from lime and barnacles and sea lice. Hmm. Modeled old wallpaper. Hmm. Then the poet notices that beneath the fish are rags of green seaweed hanging down. She considers the fish's dangerous gills, sees it gasp, not for air, but for water. Then she imagines the fish as if it were already dead. So now I'm a dead fish. She visualizes her fish already skinned, let a feathery, coarse white flesh, big bones, little bones, shiny, bright entrails, a swim bladder, bright pink. And what can you puzzle out about Bishop's initial feelings about aging from her words about the fish's eyes? Shallow, sullen, yellow, foil-backed, like, like a mirror, lenses scratched like isinglass, eyes that shift away from her gaze. The poet then notices the fish's damaged lower lip, five hooks embedded in it, each trailing a different kind of fishing line each one giving evidence of a difficult life filled with terrible struggles like ours. Then Bishop's perspective shifts suddenly. And we've all had this happen. It's like the sun breaking through the clouds. The poet realizes that the many hooks and trailing lines are not necessarily signs of endless defeat. Maybe they're more like medals of courage, proud awards of past battles well fought, close escapes, glorious victories won, and the many other challenges which all animals repeatedly 
overcome in our lifelong battles for survival from birth to death. The boat's oily bilgewater splashes out a sudden rainbow. And don't forget that a rainbow is a sign, a symbol between God and man that the war is over, you know. Anyway, uh, which the rainbow spreads to the boat's rusty engine, baler, thwarts, oarlocks, gunnels, until the whole boat, which moments before seemed filled with darkness, despair, and death, is suddenly light-filled with rainbows. Whenever we receive such instantaneous gifts of deep insight, these paradigms shifts into inspiring new ways of seeing old notions that we thought were finally settled, the, um, the changes can seem permanently, permanently changed, rearranged somehow, and they make a new kind of sense. And it is exactly just these flashes of mature understanding and lightning shifts of intuition that really good poetry offers us. Now, I never understand any poems on a first reading, much less the first hearing. So I hope this little introduction will help you poetry haters out there enjoy this reading of Bishop's words. The Fish by Elizabeth Bishop. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat, half out of water, with my hook fast in a corner of his mouth. He didn't fight. He hadn't fought at all. He hung a grunting weight, battered and venerable and homely. Here and there, his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, its pattern of darker brown like wallpaper, shapes like full-blown roses stained and lost through age. He was speckled with barnacles, fine rosettes of lime, and infested with sea lice, and underneath two or three rags of green weed hung down. While his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills, crisp and fresh with blood, that can cut so badly. I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, the big bones and the little bones, <clears throat> the dramatic reds and blacks of his <clears throat> sorry, shiny entrails, and the pink swim bladder like a big peony. I looked into his eyes, which were far larger than mine, but shallower and yellowed, the irises backed and packed with tarnished tin foil, seen through the lenses of old scratched isinglass. They shifted a little, but not to return my stare. It was more like the tipping of an object toward the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw. And then I saw that from his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet, and weapon-like, 
hung five old pieces of fish line, or four in a wire leader with the swivel still attached, with all their five big hooks grown firmly in his mouth. A green line frayed at the end where he broke it. Two heavier lines and a fine black thread still crimped from the strain and snap when it broke and he got away. Like metals with their ribbons, frayed and wavering, a five-haired beard of wisdom trailing from his aching jaw. I stared and stared, and victory filled up the little rented boat from the pool of bilge where oil had spread a rainbow around the rusted engine to the baler rusted orange, the sun-cracked thwarts, the oarlocks on their strings, the gunnels, until everything was rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. And I'd let the fish go. During the next few minutes of silence, if you will, bring to mind a past battle you have fought and consider putting out a request to the universe to help you see that time in your life differently. <laughs> 